0: Now, this weekend was supposed to be the Castlemaine Documentary Festival held in the beautiful and uh, historic Theatre Royal in Castlemaine. Victoria is in lockdown, which means the festival has done what many festivals have done since the pandemic began. And I'm going to use that word pivoted. Online. Joining me on the line is the director of the Castlemaine Documentary Festival, Claire Jager. Claire, you're streaming the festival program online now, which means in some ways it's more broadly accessible than it would have been if it had just been shown on screen in the Theatre Royal.
1: That's right, Richard. You know, last year we, we did this. I call it the full tilt pirouette, you know, <laughs> because last year we, we were, we called it, in the clouds. This year we thought we would be back on terra firma in the federal oil and we prepped to be both. Um, we knew from last year that we had to be... Um, it grew our robustness and resilience obviously, and tested how we were going to operate, which is always on a shoestring. Um, and so this year, we back in the clouds, take two. And we've had to change very quickly. But it's a great antidote to a lockdown weekend.
0: It absolutely is. And it also reinforces, as you say, the fact that right from the beginning, in terms of planning for this year's Castlemaine Documentary Festival, you had a number of options. You could uh, kind of hope that we would be gathering together as a community and that shared celebratory experience of a festival with people live in the audience watching and laughing and crying together and simultaneously (laughs) you were planning as all festivals have to do at the moment for a number of different contingencies and now that planning has paid off because you have, as you say, been able to quickly shift to streaming uh, the festival in an online environment. Nonetheless, it must be, um, I'm sure it must be a, a shame for all of the festival team, to because that shared community experience, that coming together to watch a film, to to laugh together, to cry together, is such for me, such an important part of a film festival
1: experience. Oh, Richard, you know it's what we ache for. You know, um, don't have me; otherwise, you'll have me weeping. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to save that till Monday. But you know, we we've been primed and prepped for this switch. Um, and our, our audience, I think everyone has, has kind of known that we we've all become more adaptive, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, in some ways we've, we've just had to future proof what it is that we do and stay relevant, stay in people's minds. It's shifted our brand. It means that we're now national those things are kind of an upside for when people can travel again and want to come to Castlemaine and we've been doing pop-up screenings and other events across the year not just the festival because the festival is something we can't change the dates we can't we can't postpone it and we're certainly not going to cancel it so we we will go ahead and then we keep doing other events across the year to get us back in the theatre hall whenever we can. Uh, and we, we find that that's, that's what our audience is telling us they want us to do. <laughs> so it buoys us on, really. The support is just phenomenal.
0: And having then uh, that kind of year-round presence then not only helps with festival branding and audience growth and all of those kind of key metrics that are part of the business side of things, it also presumably extends the opportunity for artistic celebration to show films that might not be available for distribution, for example, when the festival itself rolls around. So that year-round programming, not only an important adaptation to the the pandemic era but an important way to further deepen the the festival's roots and grow its reputation and as you say it's now uh, on this festival weekend the 24th and 24th of july the castlemaine documentary yes. festival is now nationally available
1: that's right and you can uh head to the website head to us on our socials uh, ticketing is straightforward and simple uh you 'll see all the you know the passes the concessions that are available to you. The films are available for forty eight hours from the scheduled program start time. We find that people actually you know they want to be able to have a binge, <laughs> which is good and also while we can still be online, we still have our uh, distributors and agreements in place that we need to satisfy. I wanted to ask Uh, about
0: that, um, sorry to interrupt there, but in terms of distributors uh, um, and getting permission to put films online how challenging and how difficult has that been for the festival? Uh, I would imagine that a year, a year and a half ago, distributors would have been like well you can screen it once in your your cinema and that's it, because the risk of putting something online is pirating and copying and so forth, but I would imagine Correct. Distributors are much more flexible now Knowing that the, uh, the way that we are watching so much cinema at the moment uh, Whether fiction or documentary Is through streaming Have they been more open and more flexible In terms of allowing the festival to, to place work online?
1: It's very variable It's incredibly variable You know, the business models are changing all over the place We deal with people all over the world and we deal also directly with filmmakers as well. Uh, We have a number of Australian premieres uh, playing on the Sunday and two wonderful films that are... uh, They're one-off screenings in Australia, Faith and Blanco on the Sunday night, which is a terrific music doc, and Bitter Love, which really (laughs) speaks to this COVID uh, lockdown at the moment. It's a bunch of... Russians cruising down the Volga, um, there's quite a bit of vodka drunk, and but it's a, it's a story about contemporary love, you know, in all its permutations and intimacy, and it's a beautifully, beautifully crafted. All the films that we screen are beautifully crafted. It's one of the things that is important to us. And then we've got a couple of terrifically strong uh, human rights activist films with Welcome to Chechnya and uh, Maxima. We don't always screen films that new. For instance, we have a film on China. Nick Torrens, who's an acclaimed Australian director, made a film called China's Three Dreams. It's a few years old, but it's a particular take and a particular view of a China that we don't see. And the film hasn't still been widely seen so and nick wouldn't be able to go back into china now it's a, it's a it's a film which is about the erasure of memory um And it's also beautifully crafted. So, you know, we do have different things on offer, even though we're small. People say we punch well above our weight. And (laughs) And, and I like to think that's true. We have a small and dedicated team and loads of uh, expertise and goodwill from our community. And, Claire, it's also
0: uh, a really important way to, uh, I guess... remind people of great films that were made recently. As you say, um, they may not be brand new, but putting films in front of an audience, extending their life and exposing them to people who may not have had the opportunity to see them before is a really key and important part of film culture. Uh, Instead of focusing on the new and the now and the the very quick window of opportunity for something to be a flash in the pan and then forgotten, a festival like (laughs) the the Castlemaine Documentary Festival is a really key way to to remind people of great films that have been made in the past 2 or 3 years not just the the latest hot release
1: that's right and we show them because they have a they they have a, a resonance to us right now you know there are reasons why we program what we do um, along with you know bitter love down the vulgar. which <laughs> is very entertaining anyway um and, and raise the bar on the Sunday morning is an outstanding film from from Iceland, uh, surprisingly about a, a bunch of thirteen-year-old um, basketball players who who take on the they take on Iceland basically. <laughs> but it, you know each of these are, are moving and. Energising and involving films.
0: What is it in particular about the documentary form that fascinates you?
1: The documentary form, or you know, how broad is that? Richard, you and I could talk for days on this. It's such a—it's a word that encompasses so much. I mean, it has the weight of of all of this. I I like these explorations of forms and these hybrids, and documentary makers are adept and agile at making the most of of the medium. Uh, they're the most forward-thinking, the most innovative, <laughs> uh, the most experimental, I think. And it takes enormous guts uh, to to make these films because they're marathons. You know, Nick Times has been making films in China for over 20 years. So like this last one, well, he was—they were built on characters and forming relationships with people over a number of years. Faith and Branco, the filmmaker, Catherine Hart followed followed this, these two people, a star-crossed love affair, over seven years. Um, they didn't boot her out. <laughs> so this—it's this trust this contract, and this contract—and that only happens in documentaries. And these films are difficult to make. Um, especially when as you say you know people want the immediate and the right here and now
0: now there's a range of different documentaries uh, as you've uh, indicated yeah. in the 2021 Castlemaine Documentary Festival. Uh, we've mentioned a couple, uh, Faith and Branko, about uh, musicians, Faith and Branko, and following them over seven years, the Australian premiere of Bitter Love, which you've mentioned, uh, the Maxim Gorky, a Russian cruise ship going down the Volga, uh, and looking at people who, some of whom think the best years of their lives are behind them, some people who are much younger, and uh, and and the different kind of... Uh, passions and dramas and drives there. One of the films that intrigues me... is Laurel Canyon, A Place in Time. Now, back in 2002, I saw the the drama film uh, the Laurel Canyon, uh, directed by Lisa Cholodenko and starring Frances McDormand. Now, Laurel Canyon yeah. is a, a, a place in Los Angeles that has taken on mythical status because of all the musicians who used to live there. And this is a, a documentary about that, I guess, that, that period in history, in what, the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s, perhaps, when so many different musicians were living in that area and the the creativity and cross fertilization that occurred.
1: Yes, yes it is. And it's 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 what they call the musical petri dish of that time. And this Lowell Canyon uh, called Lowell Canyon: A Place in Time, is directed by an Australian, Alison Elwood, who's been working in America for many years. Went there first as an editor, um, and has since also moved into directing. Uh, and it's it's a superb documentary. There is another documentary that that is on. Netflix, but that's not the one that we're screening. <laughs> we're screening Alison Elwood's fabulous one on the on the Saturday night, and it has it tells um, it's the way again that uh, she has crafted this story. It has extraordinary up close and personal uh, archival and home movie footage, and you don't see. Anyway, I mean, you're not going to see Graham Nash as he is now. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> you see everyone in the beauty of youth um, as they were then. And the only people that you see now are the two photographers who were pivotal at the time in capturing all this extraordinary footage. So there are stories in there that, that have not been seen before. There's archival footage that has not been seen before. And it's beautifully woven together, Um We did have a wonderful event planned for after that, but uh, sadly, we won't be in the cinema for it. But I would urge you to look at the film. It's wonderful.
0: The Castlemaine Documentary Festival, which features the likes of Welcome to Chechnya about the the war on the queer community uh, in uh, Chechnya itself, Uh, China's Three Dreams, Laurel Canyon, A Place in Time, Raise the Bar, about a a group of teenage basketballers uh, confronting the patriarchy and the entire nation of Iceland. Uh, (laughs) All of these films are available to watch online as part of the Castlemaine Documentary Festival. They're only streaming online this weekend, the 24th and 25th of July, which would have been when the festival was uh, being hosted uh, in the Theatre Royal in Castlemaine. It's now online... Go to cdocff.com.au to check out the program for the Castlemaine Documentary Festival and to find out how you can book tickets to watch the films online. I recommend watching them with friends in different households so you can text and tweet one another or, or alternatively, turn your phones off, watch the film uninterrupted and then jump on the phone or jump online and debrief and discuss the films over a coffee or over a glass of wine the way you would at a physical film festival, because it's that shared experience of the film that is just as powerful sometimes as the film itself.
2: Oh,
1: thank you so much, Richard.
0: Your support is fabulous. <laughs> I've been chatting with the director, the festival director of Castlemaine Documentary Festival, Claire Jager. Claire, thanks so much for joining us. And as we said, uh, people should go to cdocff.com.au, the website for the Castlemaine Documentary Festival, to watch the films online this weekend, the 24th and the 25th of July. Claire, That's thanks not. very much for joining us. Melbourne's own Drupal R. On Monday morning, uh, when I logged on to my work account to check my emails and think, now I need a story to write because I've got a gap in my publishing schedule. Lo and behold, a community service announcement from uh, the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, spearheaded by the MSO, but featuring swathes of performers from other companies and individual artists. Uh, It's a community service announcement focused on vaccine hesitancy and getting people immunised for COVID, given that the federal government has kind of let the ball drop when it comes to a, a potent, uplifting campaign. So we're just going to hear a little bit of uh, the performance of a lifetime message so that you can get a, a sense of its kind of uplifting emotional tone.
1: Dear Victoria,
0: we know it's been hard stuck inside for COVID lockdowns. It's been hard for us too.
1: Performing at home just isn't the same.
2: Every week, Victoria's arts community comes together to give you the performance of a lifetime. And now it's your turn. We need you to come together and get vaccinated as soon as you're eligible to
1: give us the performance of a lifetime.
0: This isn't just about you as an
2: individual soloist.
1: Some people can't get a vaccine, so it's an ensemble effort to make sure they're protected too. You can call a hotline or go online to make a booking. Then jump in the queue. And bring something to keep you entertained while you wait.
0: Now, I'm not going to play the whole ad, but you can uh, see that on YouTube and I highly recommend checking it out. It uh, was written and directed by Emma Muir-Smith, who joins us now on the line to talk about shooting the MSO's performance of a lifetime video and community service announcement. Emma, thanks for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks for having me, and thank you also for such a positive and uplifting community service announcement addressing vaccine hesitancy. And really, in terms of an antidote to the messaging from the federal government, I found this community service announcement particularly uh, kind of stimulating. And I wanted to ask you how it was developed uh, and and conceived, because we saw the federal government recently releasing a pretty bland ad. And Good ads tap into our emotions, sometimes in the case of the Grim Reaper ad from the uh, the AIDS pandemic, uh, in a negative and fearful way. This is a message which is focused on goodwill, on community, and on the the power of connection. So it taps into all these positive emotions. So talk to us about why you wanted to create this ad and and how it developed.
3: Yeah, so it was actually the um, the idea of Steele Foster as the MSO, he's a production manager. And it was his idea to bring the community together and create a, a vaccine ad. Um, and we really wanted it to be very much a positive thing. You know, as as many people are aware, the arts has suffered a lot um, during the pandemic, but so have a lot of other industries. And we really wanted to make sure that it was a message from one, you know, to everyone else who's also hard done by in this, um, in this pandemic. And, and we really wanted it to be uplifting. We wanted it to be a sort of call to arms, so to speak, um, and just something that might encourage people who were maybe feeling a bit nervous or, you know, there's there's been a lot of misinformation, a lot of changing information and confusion around, you know, aspects of the rollout. So we we just wanted it to be something that could be positive and encourage people in, in a good way.
0: Now, one of the things that's really effective about it is not only does it um, feature the likes of uh, Deborah Cheatham, Tim Minchin, Rhonda Birchmore, Virginia Gay, Tripod, Meow Meow and many others. So if you're already a regular attendee at at the theatre, seeing these performers speaking to you uh, and encouraging you to get vaccinated may well help uh, encourage people to do so. But it fascinated me too that it's it's a positive and compelling message. It's, it's a call to action, but it's not a fearful one. Talk to us about getting that emotional tone right. Did you do a lot of research into kind of how to craft a successful advertising campaign, for example, before you embarked on this project?
3: Um, not advertising specifically. I actually teach um, at Monash University in health communication. So I did have a bit of a background in um, how... Specifically, public health messaging is created, and yeah, basically, um, I guess I just made a big list of all the reasons why people might not want to get a vaccine or might be on the fence about it. You know, we were never trying to um, target the anti-vaxxers; that's not our domain. <laughs> but um, we thought that we could we could possibly get some of the people who are just feeling a bit unsure, maybe not not entirely certain what's correct information, what's not correct information, maybe you just need that you know, a bit of a handhold and so um, I did a lot of research into what public health experts were saying and for instance there was a, an expert at um, UNSW who had called publicly for messaging that addressed exactly what happens when you go to a vaccine centre because a lot of people were finding the mystery of that um, process to be something that was um, causing them to be hesitant to get the vaccine, um, things like people didn't want to wait in the queue, and I guess there aren't queues so much now, but there, there were at the time that we were conceiving this. So we we're really looking at um, what kinds of things might be um, holding people back that we could actually make a difference with, and we wanted to put it in a fun light and just uh, give people a boost as well.
0: Now, it, it's got a strong emotional message, too, without uh, kind of dwelling on gloom and doom, such as the recent ad that we saw focused particularly on New South Wales showing a a young woman struggling for for air in a hospital bed uh, because of COVID, uh, Which an ad which not only is frightening but also ignores the fact that young people generally can't get vaccinated at the moment because there's not enough uh, uh, Pfizer to go around and they've been scared off from getting AstraZeneca. Um, But this is... Positive, it's uplifting, it's focused on community good and community action. And as I said, it, it's a call to arms. And what I f- found particularly intriguing watching the online discussion play out on Monday and Tuesday, in particular, after it had been released, some people were poo pooing it, saying this is kind of only going to reach the converted, it's only going to reach the core demographic who already go to the MSO, the Australian Ballet, the Melbourne Theatre Company, Arts Centre Melbourne, who are all kind of of key partners in helping this campaign get filmed and realised. But I also read that uh, some of the key demographics who are most hesitant about getting the vaccination are people in their 60s and older, despite the fact that they're at risk. Uh, and uh, another core demographic is uh, women who are un- particularly uh, uh, the f- women are- have been perhaps because of the, the focus around well being and health and so forth some of the conflicting messages are-, are scaring some women particularly older women off from getting vaccinated so again, this uh, campaign this uh, community service message is really focused on the demographics who are perhaps most hesitant and most frightened and, and most uncertain about what 's going on
3: yes that exactly what we were going for, and I think we, we wanted to show the whole community, but we did specifically, I think, if you have a close look at the ads, um, you'll notice that some of those really key messages about, you know, if you're feeling nervous, talk to your GP, they can help you get the facts, it's, it's normal to be nervous, those messages are all delivered by women um, who are more in that demographic. So, we were really trying to target um, those people because they are they are eligible. And I've spoken to a lot of women um, in their 60s, in their 50s, who are eligible for AstraZeneca only and um, were really put off by a lot of the um, sort of to and froing from the government's um, messaging. And I think, you know, that's, that's totally understandable that people would be confused and hesitant. And, yeah, they're exactly the people we were trying to target with this emotional message.
0: Now, in terms of pulling it together, how challenging was that? You said it was uh, conceived by somebody at the MSO, and then uh, I've mentioned some of the other key partners, uh, the the Melbourne Theatre Company, Arts Centre Melbourne, the Australian Ballet, and then all the individual artists who were featured as well, Rhonda Birchmore, Virginia Gay, Tripod and others... Uh, Given that so many performers aren't working at the moment because COVID has shut down so much of the industry, I'm guessing some of them probably jumped at the chance just to do something positive and creative and contribute back to a community that has given them so much support and so much love over the years.
3: Absolutely. It was really overwhelming, actually, the willingness of people to participate and they they all donated their time, which was amazing. Um, And we had some brilliant... Um, people at the MSO helping to get lots of people involved and yeah it was it was really fantastic a lot of people jumped at the chance as you said and we're really grateful to them for that because I think that one of the strengths of this um, video is that we do have recognizable faces and trusted personalities as well so yes we're super grateful to all of those people who did donate their time for this and helped you know, to help their community and to help the wider community
0: as well. If you haven't seen the performance of a Lifetime video, jump on YouTube and watch it. Um, I must recommend that perhaps uh, if you're an avid theatre-goer, an avid attender of the MSO or the ballet or uh, live performance generally, you may find it a little moving. I cried the first time I saw it because it was so positive and warm and connected so deeply to some of the things that are most important to me in life. So, uh, uh, God, just talking about it, my eyes are uh, watering up at the moment. So uh, it's a really moving ad, Emma. It's a very successful community message and campaign, and it is available on YouTube. I also wanted to acknowledge the fact that it was released on Monday, almost simultaneously with the fact that the Victorian Council of Social Services also released a public service announcement addressing vaccine hesitancy and uh, and uh, showing a different facet of the community. Again, it's kind of, it's almost kind of depressing that. Um, kind of individuals and arts organisations and community service organisations are having to step into the vacuum here because the federal government has been so inefficient at communicating with uh, with the public through a, a campaign like this.
3: Yes, I, I suppose so. There's, um, I probably don't want to get too much into that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, talk about I, the VCOS do... ad, for, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I... yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the VCOS ad was really beautiful and um, I think, you know, I think it's really wonderful that, community groups are are banding together for this I you know I think it was a fantastic um, idea by the MSO and by Steele Foster to do this and I think the same for Vcos uh, you know I think there's a real power in a message coming from the community rather than coming from the government as well so I think they really fulfill different um, you know different spaces in in that area so I think yeah I think the the Vcos side was fantastic and I'm I'm just so thrilled that there are other community groups doing this as well, and um, hopefully
0: there'll be more well, given the success of uh, the performance of a lifetime campaign it's it's kind of had a high kind of number of views it's been shared widely on uh, in traditional media, social media, and elsewhere. Are you hoping, Emma, that it might perhaps inspire other community groups i'm wondering, for example, if uh, what the impact would be say if uh, the AFL got involved and created a, a similar campaign urging uh, its audiences to get vaccinated so that they could return to watching games live, for example. Do you, do you hope there will be a ripple effect uh, from this video that you've written and directed?
3: Absolutely. I, I think that um, it would be fantastic if someone like the AFL decided to make their own video. Um, I guess one of the considerations is just making sure that the messaging is consistent with what we know is effective about health messaging as well. It's, I guess it's important to remember that this isn't just an ad, um, that there's actually quite a bit of theoretical underpinning to health messaging and and it being effective. But I do think that it would be fantastic if someone like the AFL have such a huge reach for a totally different demographic. And I think in that, in that sense, the more the merrier, it would be really
0: great to see that yeah well certainly the performance of a lifetime video uh its messaging is on target emotional uplifting it's highly successful so uh i'm talking to emma muir smith who is its writer and director emma congratulations uh, to you and everybody involved in producing this video it's not only a powerful public health message but a very important one as well and i think a very very successful one so thank you very much for joining us on the program today This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. My final guest for the morning joins us online. Linda Thompson is the Artistic Director of the Australian Contemporary Opera Company. Now, you may have noticed uh, if you've been listening to the show all morning that I haven't had as many guests as normal because a few shows have had to be rescheduled because of our latest lockdown. Linda, your upcoming production of The Enchanted Pig, you've had to cancel a couple of performances uh, in late July, but you're forging ahead with performances in early August.
2: Morning, Richard. Yes, that's right. We're uh, hanging on for dear life, as they say, hoping that we can get before a live audience for the last part of our run uh it's been a bit of a roller coaster as you can imagine (laughs) swapping and changing and um dealing with changes to rehearsal schedules and but we uh look like we're on track we um pivoting as the (laughs) the saying goes to uh, to filming the opera and streaming it which we would not have done if we um had just done our live season so that's a uh that's a bonus for people who couldn't come into the theatre. Yeah. But being such a small company, we uh, usually try to uh, limit the pressure we put on ourselves.
0: That's understandable. But with so much pressure on everybody in the arts <laughs> at the moment, it kind of makes sense to go, what are some other strategies? It's been interesting talking to people in festivals and talk, talking to people in artistic programming and so forth, going, we don't just have a contingency plan. We have about 30 of them these days.
2: Mm. That's so right. But I think if you're running um, an independent arts company, that's the way you roll, pandemic or not. I mean, pandemic takes things to a whole new level, but um, Contingently, clans are our middle name.
0: <laughs> now, for people who are unfamiliar with the Enchanted Pig as a production, as its name suggests, uh, this is an opera for families—a very child-friendly production, as opposed to one of the the grand operas that is the stock in trade of, say, Opera Australia.
2: Yes, except that Gail Edwards, director, the original director, and I really struggled with this concept of. Um, family opera and we actually struggle with the name of the opera because it's just not for children It's uh, it has as much appeal to adults as it does for children and uh, it's quite sophisticated in some of its um, humour and certainly the music is just has great appeal so yes it is a under the umbrella of family opera and firmly put there by its title but it is it, it seriously is a, a work that has appeal for all ages and you don't have to have children or even like children to enjoy the
0: production <laughs> Which to me is a sign of a sophisticated work of art that it can appeal to a broad range of audiences it doesn't, works can be accessible without being simplistic for example um, when we use the word uh, kind of broadly accessible to describe programming people often think of dumbed down television for example but a, a work can be sophisticated and, and target multiple audiences simultaneously with with wit, with insight with panache and artistic flair um, great art appeals to children just as much as, as it appeals to adults
2: well that's exactly right and what was really um, gratifying about um, the reaction from um, shall we say the older generation who came to the enchanted pig for whatever reason not necessarily because they wanted to see the show but to support the company's work they were probably they probably raved loudest and longest They loved it. It's certainly a a work worth putting all this effort in to make sure something happens in the middle of uh,
0: the lockdown. Now, uh, one of the challenges with staging this work for you is, um, and something that I think talks to the ambition of Australian Contemporary Opera Company, uh, you've brought in not one but two performers from New Zealand to perform in the work.
2: Yes, the uh, New Zealand... Australia Travel Bubble was very attractive to make connections with uh, professional singers that i have worked with in the past. And also Hadley Adams, uh, who's based in San Francisco, uh, fully vaccinated and just coming out of two weeks quarantined in New Zealand to come to Melbourne. Uh, Hadley was our first recipient of a fellowship when we started our studio artist program in 2009 and has since had an extremely successful international career so that sort of reconnecting has always been part of our um, motivation in making connection with people who are living overseas um, we've also had a lot of international input from young artists from all around the world over our last 12 years so um, we Thought that the New Zealand Australia travel bubble was a good opportunity to continue that international engagement.
0: People will be hearing you talk about the last twelve years of the company, for example, and maybe scratching their head slightly, saying, "I don't remember hearing about." the Australian Contemporary Opera Company 12 years ago, 10 years ago, 8 years ago, 9 years ago, that's because you were previously operating under a different name. It was back in January this year that you uh, rebranded and renamed what was previously Gertrude Opera into the Australian Contemporary Opera Company. Why the the name change to begin with?
2: Uh, you know, we did a lot of consultation in 2019 um, prior to the pandemic about how we could increase awareness of the company and what it actually performed, what the output was, um, because Gertrude was a um, a very affectionate <laughs> company name and named after an extraordinary woman who we felt needed um, some more recognition, Gertrude Johnson, who... Actually, founded the first opera school and company in Melbourne in 1934. So we we honoured her through calling the company Gertrude Opera. Um, the Australian contemporary aspect means that we don't have to explain anymore that our singers come from all over Australia. Maybe a Melbourne-based company, but it's a national company, and that the contemporary aspect it it, it can be. Um, interpreted in so many ways. But for us, it is, we are just of now. We, we are looking after the careers of people now. We are looking at ways that opera can relate to society and our audience in the now. And so the contemporary is, is uh, sums up what we do across all um, branches of our activity. And it's not it's sort of nice to not have to explain, uh, well, we say a cocoa for short, Um, And all we have to do is is say that the name of the company in full and people have an understanding of what we do.
0: And amongst the other things you do, as well as uh, staging the Enchanted Pig, which uh, the company originally staged in 2019 to great acclaim, you've been staging, for example... um, I guess, uh, works like As One, which is effectively a chamber opera in some ways, but then at the other end of the scale, the uh, Yarra Valley Opera Festival, for example. So uh, a small company, but one punching kind of well above its weight, to use that somewhat clichéd term.
2: (laughs) Yes, um, we're happy with that because it's exactly what happens. And a company, an arts company, is only as... Um, productive and successful as its as its company members. So our artists and musicians really, and our production team, everyone involved in the company actually goes above and beyond to deliver what we do. And uh, there's a lot of um, there is a lot of goodwill and generosity, and it is all about telling the stories. The opposite we choose have. Stories that we want to tell and feel have a need to be told. So whether it's a chamber opera or like The Handmaid's Tale, whether it's something that is um, culturally popular, uh, we craft it in order to fit our resources and present it in a way that we... Um, which seems to be paying off. People are loving what we're doing.
0: And also a company with a really strong commitment to nurturing and creating opportunities for younger and emerging Australian opera singers. And I know there has been some criticism in the industry of our national opera company, who seem more focused on flying in international stars as opposed to working more with uh, locals. That controversy aside, the fact that your company, the Australian Contemporary Opera Company, uh, like other smaller opera companies, really seem committed to supporting new talent to ensure that uh, there is a career path for Australian opera singers.
2: Well, that's right. And I think at the core of our company are our young artists who absolutely relish um, working in our uh, unique environment in that we require them to work under a professional's schedule uh and we also have expectations that they're going to meet in, in terms of professional standards. But they also act as a feeder to Opera Australia and Opera Australia um by virtue of you know we've got in terms of opera companies in Australia, we have the haves and have nots and certainly Opera Australia is where every single young artist wants to work because that's that's the pinnacle of our operatic activity in Australia. So um without getting into quotas of international artists and all the, the political um, storm around who gets employed um, and also the uh, the gender bias, which is a whole other conversation about who gets to sing and direct and perform, um, I think our young artists transition quite easily from our program and the professional performances that we give into the professional arena with companies like
0: Australia. And speaking of performances, to return to The Enchanted Pig, as we mentioned, the... season was due to begin on the 29th of July, so 29th of July and 31st of July performances have been cancelled, but tickets are available for Tuesday the 3rd of August and Thursday the 5th of August to see The Enchanted Pig. Uh, If you missed its 2019 season, now's the chance to see it again, presented by Australian Contemporary Opera Company. Uh, And as Linda mentioned, uh, the production being filmed so it can be streamed or screened at a later date which again will make it all the more accessible for audiences say in regional victoria who can't travel physically or perhaps can't afford the costs of visiting melbourne staying overnight and seeing the show
2: yes we're thrilled about that i should just say that until the lockdown in victoria is announced as as lifted the ticket sales are on hold so everybody needs to listen out for the news next tuesday so, um, and then we'll know
0: what's going on. So keep an ear out for the news and then jump online. More info at A C Ocoacoco.org.au for information about the Australian Contemporary Opera Company's The Enchanted Pig tickets uh, through Ticketek once the once we are out of lockdown and once that news has been announced so that people can then book uh, to see the performances of The Enchanted Pig on Tuesday the 3rd of August and Thursday the 5th of August 7:30 p.m. Uh, presented by the Australian Contemp Contemporary Opera Company at the Athenaeum Theatre in Collins Street in Melbourne. I've been chatting with Linda Thompson, the uh, Australian Contemporary Opera Company's Artistic Director. Linda, thanks so much for joining us and Chookers for uh, those two shows. I'm very much looking forward to hearing that it's a great success once tickets are no longer on hold.